Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. The idea is to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to listen to episode one in which I talk more about the purposes and scope of the podcast and lay some of the foundations for most of the issues we discuss through the various episodes. And if you're a regular, please do help spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, and others in your networks. You can find links to the materials discussed in all the episodes, including links to the impressive list of great reading recommendations that have been made by all of our guests on our website, jibjabpodcast.com. And for those regular listeners who have been wondering at the delay in getting the last couple of episodes, my apologies. Life has a habit of getting in the way sometimes, but we will be trying to get back on a more regular schedule going forward. Our guest today is Boyd Van Dyke, who is currently a McKenzie Fellow at the University of Melbourne, and before that was a visiting fellow at the Louderpack Centre for International Law at University of Cambridge and taught at LSE, among other places. He's the author of a new book that has been getting quite a bit of attention and acclaim, Preparing for War, The Making of the Geneva Conventions, published by Oxford University Press. And in this episode, we discuss both some aspects of the process of researching and writing the book and some of its overarching themes and dive into the weeds on some of the particular issues and aspects of the Geneva Conventions that he explores in the book. This includes the extent to which he tries to correct certain myths and misperceptions that surround the history of the Geneva Conventions and some of the paradoxes and ironies that are revealed by a detailed history of the negotiations the tensions and internal contradictions experienced by different parties to the negotiations, some of which may be a little bit surprising, such as, for example, the somewhat regressive and obstructionist role played by the Anglo-American parties with respect to several aspects of the treaty. We also discussed the perhaps surprising extent to which some of the participants in the negotiations, including the ICRC, were deploying the language and concepts of human rights to a large extent in the negotiations. We talk a little bit about why such a history and a better understanding of the dynamics and motivations surrounding the negotiations may matter to our understanding of the operation of the treaties today. All in all, it's a fascinating discussion that only begins to scratch the surface of the rich detail of the book. So with that, let us get to the conversation. Well, Boyd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Thank you for the invitation. As you know, before I dive into the substance, I've been asking guests to the podcast to share something about themselves, maybe something a little quirky that provides some insights into who you are, or at least something that maybe your colleagues don't know about you. Yeah, so I'm a real big football fan. For for years, I, I played well, soccer, I should say. That makes more sense to the American audience of your podcast. So I've played that for, for many years. And of course, I'm calling from Melbourne. So that means I'm in a different time zone than my favorite team in Europe, which just won a big match against a French team. So I'm in a really good mood today because they're now in the final knockout stage or playoff of the Champions League. And hopefully they get to the to the group stage. So this is a really good morning for me. So wait, you haven't told us who your team is yet. It's PSV. Yeah, it's oh. a Dutch team. It's, it's very small, very isolated, but it's the only thing that connects me with with the place where I grew up, which is in the in the south of the Netherlands. For the Dutch the listeners of this podcast, it makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so I'm in a really good spirit now. And 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 yes, football is really one of my, my passions. And I still like to play it every now and then, but it's certainly not the, the type of level I want to talk about on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're here, of course, to talk about your new book. 
Preparing for War, which just came out earlier this year and is already winning all sorts of acclaim and is the subject of much discussion and, and indeed has been recommended by a previous guest on the podcast. So with most books of this nature, which are both very detailed and rigorous in their analysis, but also quite broad in their historical sweep and theoretical claims, we're going to have some difficulty in sort of getting our arms around it and doing it justice in the time that we have. But I thought we'd begin with some of the broader big picture issues and then work our way down to some of the detail that will help illustrate those issues. And I thought maybe just to begin, if you could just set the stage, if you will, especially for the students out there who, who may not be aware of just how long the process was for the development of and negotiation of, of the four Geneva Conventions, to outline the chronology of that process for us. Yeah, sure. So, of course, the conventions, Geneva Conventions, were, were adopted in, in August 1949 after negotiations that, that took several months for our, over the summer. So most people tend to assume then that that process went actually quite quickly. It took only a few months, and then you adopted these four conventions in August of that, of that year. But if you look a little bit closely at the negotiations and also different meetings that took place before the diplomatic conference in the summer of 1949, you realize it was not so much a quick process, but a very much extended process that went back to the interwar period in the 1920s after the First World War, when all the key concepts of what later became humanitarian law were coined. Some of them already adopted, of course, in the 29 Geneva Conventions on the sick and wounded and prisoners of war. But really those discussions about fundamental revision of the laws of war through the Geneva Conventions is a discussion that took water decades instead of, of months, as most most people assume. So in the book, I basically start in the 1920s for every chapter because I see that the First World War as kind of this formative moment for humanitarian law and, and work my way towards 1949, even though there were all kinds of moments in the late uh, or the mid-30s, in the early 20s, when we could have had already what we now call the four Geneva Conventions of 1949 in the sense that those key concepts were coined at different moments and long before August 1949 when the convention was finally adopted as, as, as four treaties. So yeah, I take a, an extended time scope and it takes me back to, to the years before the Second World War, which we tend to see as this, this kind of rupture of, of humanitarian laws and kind of a, a formative and a starting moment. Right. So a theme that runs through the book, and indeed an argument you develop in the introduction and then run like a thread through the entire book, is this claim that your history, this account, is different from previous histories and previous accounts, and that it both challenges and corrects a number of myths and misconceptions about the drafting history, and explanations indeed for why the conventions ended up the way they did. So perhaps we could start with, in your view, what are some of those myths? and misconceptions and how precisely has your history helped to correct those yeah so i think there are a couple of what i call master narratives of the conventions past i think the most powerful one suggests that these delegates who went to geneva in the late 40s were primarily motivated by the shock of atrocity and inspired by certain humanitarian principles which led to establish what i call the most important rules ever formulated for armed conflict so these conventions, according to that line of thinking, were the product of liberal humanitarianism, a tradition that 
dated back, of course, to the moment when the Red Cross movement had its inception in the mid-19th century, the Battle of Solferino. And since then, we have had this kind of humanitarian movement pushing for laws and principles that would place certain restraints on the conduct of warfare or solely seek to protect victims of war as such. So according to that kind of notion or what I call myth, People assumed that the deliberations in Geneva were, were shaped by kind of a cohort of, of liberal international jurists dedicated also to rectifying the convention's shortcoming, which the Second World War had so vividly exposed. So there's this kind of long-term explanation for the convention's emergence in the 40s. And there's this idea that there was this rupture in the Second World War that, you know, created a momentum for humanitarian law to emerge. So, so my book tells a little bit of a different story. I argue that the conventions were not so much a product of the shock felt in the wake of the atrocities of the Second World War. Constructing the conventions meant outlawing some forms of inhumanity while tolerating others. And it concerned a great deal more than simply fixing kind of the defects or shortcomings of international laws revealed by the experience of, of the Second World War. So making the conventions after sort to contest European rule, imperial rule, empower the ICRC, invent something like rights in wartime, create different notions for war crimes, and of course also prepare for, for wars to come, which is a reference to the title of the book. So, so for me, a more productive way of looking at the past is to argue that these individuals were not so much thinking only about the past or past events and making them sound like very passive characters, but but rather kind of active protagonists trying to shape the future of warfare. And and so many different ways they try to define the, the nature of future battlefield by deciding whose lives matter, who deserve protection, what counted as it as a legitimate target. And of course, we had the right to enforce all these principles. So that's in a way kind of the argument of the book. Right. And within that, I mean, it really struck me that there's another sort of sub-theme to that is this idea that there are these paradoxes and ironies that crop up and explain the results of, of various aspects of the conventions in a number of important ways. And, and at the very center of it is this paradox, as you say, that relates to the title of the book, which was rather than this idea that the project was purportedly to entirely humanize war, there's this myth around the negotiations emphasizing this humanizing feature. The dominant parties, and particularly the Anglo-American parties and the imperial powers, were in essence, as the title suggests, preparing for war. And we're viewing this process as an aspect of preparing for war, as opposed to just simply humanizing war. So perhaps you could just talk a little bit more about this, about these paradoxes and these ironies that keep cropping up. And, and as you say, I think in the, this other theme that I would like to explore is this idea that the results were really very contingent, right? That, that we have this myth that these were somehow inevitable, but actually they're very contingent and could have gone in any number of different ways. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So of course I should make a short disclaimer about myself since I'm not a lawyer, at least not trained as a lawyer. And I come at these questions from the perspective of an historian. So for me, the Galdus project or the Galdus book was to historicize the convention 
Kafant's. And Kafant readers also with, with Geneva's paradoxes and contradictions, as, as you've just mentioned. So this is not a story of triumph. I, I want to place the conventions in, in history and, and, and better grasp the past and politics of the laws of war. That was really what I was trying to do with the book. So yeah, that, that comes with all kinds of paradoxes and contradictions, at least according to me. So outlawing illegal conduct in war did, I think, as much to outline the what I call the silhouette of humanized wars to establish the legality of wage war itself. So if you look at the records of several great powers as I've done in the book, it's obvious that they took or attributed certain kind of ambitions, of course, not just to the United States, as you mentioned, but also, of course, the Soviet Union. And they took for granted, I think, the the violent character of decolonization, particularly in Asia, but also in other parts of, of the world. And so virtually every drafter accepted the reality of war as, as a kind of a given, if not as a defining feature of, of their time. So although they did not seek war as such, they did prepare for it by creating this set of treaties in the event that their worst fear should materialize. So yes, I think you're also right about the contingent part of the book. In fact, it's, it's quite crucial to what I was trying to argue in the book. So when it comes to the contingent part of the conventions, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are all kinds of trajectories possible. We tend to take the four conventions with several common articles applying to different armed conflicts for granted as this was supposed to be the, the outcome. Well, in reality, of course, these drafters conceptualized ethics in war or restraint in war in all kinds of ways and, and all kinds of possibilities on the table as they were designing the drafts for the, for the convention. So that's that's a point I stress quite a lot in the book about these different proposals, how there are all kinds of unforeseen events and, and, and consequences of decisions that were taken in Geneva. Because I think what, what is important about that kind of work is to not just to get a sense of these alternative possibilities and how the law could have been different, but also to give, I guess, a certain sense of hope that, you know, lawmaking in this case also created these, these very ambitious, if not revolutionary proposals for humanizing war in ways that few of us remember. And and, and I think it, it attests to the kind of flexibility of lawmaking and the, the chances that lawmaking creates for emancipatory and progressive outcomes when it comes to humanizing warfare through such an endeavor. Right. But of course, as you detail in the book, there were also these sort of rear guard efforts by different parties at different times, very much resistant to, to these sort of revolutionary ideas and, in, and trying to sort of almost sabotage efforts to develop some of these ideas. And again, we see, I think, paradox in the sense that, for example, the example that, that struck me as being the most obvious was the French. So on the one hand, having this experience of Nazi occupation and, and having had resistance fighters being very much part of the, the experience of France in the war, therefore you would think coming at the issues of insurgency and resistance fighters and the protection of civilians in, in armed conflict from a particular perspective. But meanwhile, during the latter stages of this process, they're also beginning wars in Indochina and Algeria, and so have a very different impulse. And as you explain, and I think, you know, I'd like us to sort of unpack a little bit because also fascinating and related to this idea of contingency is there were conflicts even within delegations 
and within different agencies or different departments within the parties that we're negotiating. So perhaps we could sort of unpack some of those. Yeah, so there's a lot to discuss on this on this point, and I think it also refers to the impact of the Cold War and decolonization, of course, more more broadly. Right. So yeah, I mean, the, the French position is is quite interesting, and I think it also connects to the question of identity, apart from these kind of structural phenomena regarding the impact of, of for instance, the Cold War. So the French position is quite interesting to to reflect on, not just because there are all kinds of internal divisions within the French state. And of course, the French state's position started to change quite radically over a period of roughly five years, four years, depending on where you, where you place the starting point of their discussions after the Second World War. So what I can say about the French position is, is that, again, identity is, is, is crucial. So it's indeed true that at the start, they make all kinds of proposals to enhanced position of resistance fighters, particularly those operating in occupied territory as a response to their experience during the Nazi occupation. And in many ways, that's not surprising. Also, other people have looked at this issue in the past and have noted this. And uh, it also makes sense from the perspective of identity. The French Gaulist state seeing itself as this kind of hair of resistance, heroic resistance fighters, and of course also of the kind of uh, a victimized nation that was, that was crippled by years of foreign occupation. So it's not strange that they, apart from trying to enhance the position of resistance fighters occupied territory, also made proposals to create a quite robust civilian convention in order to make up for that experience, basically. So, but at the, at the same time, I think that's that's kind of the conventional explanation for how these conventions emerge, right? As a response to that rupture of the Second World War and, and a particularly experience of occupation. But then what's interesting is that the French basically from the start had to also come to grips with with the ongoing or about to start counterinsurgency campaign in Indochina. For those who are not familiar with all the details from decolonization in Asia at that time, of course, you have the war of in Indochina where Vietnamese nationalists and, and communists, of course, start to rebel against French colonial rule. And while the French are trying to reimpose that rule after the Japanese occupation had ended. So that created all kinds of problems for these French drafters back in Europe about how do we deal with the idea of giving resistance fighters greater protections if we're going to face them in Indochina as we're trying to put down these insurgencies. So that's one problem that they had. Another problem was, of course, the Cold War. So French cities have been heavily bombed by the Allies during the Second World War, and the French at the start were quite keen to protect the villages and cities against air bombing, just as they were trying to protect resistance fighters, as I just mentioned, and, and then, then also, of course, empower the positions of, of so-called irregulars, including spies. That's, that's a point I just want to mention briefly. I'll get back to it in a moment. Mm -hmm. But let me first look at the question of air bombing. So the French were quite keen on this point at the start, but then suddenly kind of dropped it from their later proposals from roughly 47 to 48. And then made me wonder why, what's going on at the French side? And, and it's the same with their proposals to empower position of irregulars, including spies. They also sort of toned down that proposal a little bit in 48, 49. And I think that's when the moment where the Cold War starts to become relevant and the fact that the French are becoming allied with the, the other Western powers against the Soviet Union through the Western alliance and eventually what we now call NATO. So 
for them, this is the moment to start thinking about the impact of decolonization, as I want to mention, but also for the Cold War. So they start to fear that there might be Soviet or communist spies in France and the British and Americans are telling them, well, you know, you can empower the position of resistance fighters or even spies, but you might have to face them in the near future if there will be a confrontation with the Soviet Union. So are you sure you want to go down that path? And it's the same with air bombing because the French, of course, realized that their most important political defense against the Soviet Union is not so much French resistance fighters or French conventional forces, but rather air, U.S. And, and, and British air power, of course. And if you want to keep that intact, if you want to keep that powerful, then, of course, you don't want to have severe restraints on Allied air bombing in case of a, a new confrontation or a case of a confrontation with, with the Soviet Union or even a revived Germany for that matter. So, so the French are, are taking these positions on board and they have to come to grips with the with their own identities in a way, right? So they have to think about themselves no longer as just, you know, having suffered during the Nazi occupation, but also as an ally in the Cold War together with the United States and Great Britain in kind of pushing back against what they see as Soviet expansionism, and of course, as a fighting colonial power in China and perhaps also in, in other parts of the globe, because they thought this would not just be an isolated event in, in Southeast Asia, but also in other parts of the colonies, as they faced already in Algeria right after the end of the war in Europe, as well as in other places in the French Empire. Uh, so that was, that was, I think, very tough and complicated for the French, and it created these indeed quite paradoxical positions they took in, in Geneva and, and other places. Right. And as you explore in the book, it's not, of course, just the French, the Americans, the British, the Soviets. They, they each have their own sort of internal contradictions that they have to deal with, which is, is really quite interesting. So in the time we have, I mean, I would like to sort of drill into some of the detail. And it, it's quite interesting. And perhaps as we get into the detail, you can tell us a little bit about some of the choices you made and how you structured the book, because there's this initial chapter that sets out the, the chronology that we've talked about and the process. And then you have these substantive chapters that deal with the civilian convention, a second chapter on civil, civil and colonial wars and the development of common article three, a third chapter on the treatment of insurgents and partisans in occupied territory. And then finally, indiscriminate warfare, and in particular, the employment of aerial bombing, nuclear weapons, and starvation as a means and method of warfare. And, and a final chapter on enforcement. And so it's quite interesting how you, I mean, this choice to structure the book in this way and to allocate the subjects in this fashion, as opposed to just doing it convention by convention. I mean, there's any number of ways one can think about how to, to structure this, but maybe you could just say a few words on why you decided to tackle it this way. Writing a history of the conventions is is complicated, not just because there are so many different issues they cover and that there are four different treaties with common articles, but also, of course, that it's complicated because it it's, it's so ambitious. It's so wide ranging. And some of these issues are quite connected. Other yeah. issues are quite distinct and working kind of autonomously. But we're essentially dealing with, with trees that cover a panoply of issues from, from hospital ships, through the right of water, for POWs, to sexual violence and armed conflict, and, and so on and so forth. So in the space of a single monograph, it's it's quite impossible to cover all these issues. And you have to make some tough choices. So what I what I did in the end was to focus on what I think are kind of the foundational questions of the conventions. So basically those provisions and ideas and concepts define the scope of these trees and kind of the, the most cardinal, most central provisions that seek to protect victims of war, varying from, from civilians or protected prisoners, they're called, to, to prisoners of war. So you've mentioned, of course, already kind of the, the structure of the, of the book in the sense of what 
topics it discusses. And I think I should also just say a couple of words about how I approach these issues. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do in the book is to write a comparative and entangled history of the conventions of return to the original documents, meaning archives. So starting with the two, first two points, comparative and entangled approaches, what I do in the book is I, I focus on a, a select number of actors, so basically Soviet Union, France, as I already mentioned, United Kingdom, United States, and the International Committee of the Red Cross. Those are the, the, the actors I'm most interested in. And I look at how they've got first thought about these different issues that you already mentioned and compare their views on these issues, both among these actors as well as within kind of their states, within their organizations and how different actors within the French state or within the British state or even within the ICRC thought about these questions and help us if different opinions about this and what that tells us about their visions of humanity and war throughout this period of basically the first half of the 20th century. And then, of course, I also use the word entangled. This is quite a popular word. Well, what do I mean with that? Well, entangled means is, uh, of course, I look at specific issues in these chapters, but also try to draw connections between them. If you look at common article three, you can, of course, just focus on the emergence of the concept of non-international armed conflict and how that was codified. But it's striking that drafters thought about these issues in tandem with other questions, such as the protection of our regulars or the protection of civilians. And they made certain deals informally or sometimes formally about how to codify these issues. And if you just would kind of analyze them separately or distinctly or autonomously, you would miss these connections that they drew among different provisions. And of course, that's, I think, done quite often in the literature on these questions. So I thought it's important to create connections, but it's methodologically quite difficult. And, and I'll get to that in a moment about kind of the challenges of writing such a history. And the last point is, of course, to return to archives. I think most people, or at least certainly many people in the field have used these so-called kind of the official documents that feature the, the minutes of meetings and so on and so forth. But the problem with these sources is that they reveal a different reality than, than what I encounter when I was doing research in archives of these different states and organizations. So basically the difference between what they say in public, and what they say in private, but also the fact that these minutes were heavily edited at the time by drafted themselves or their assistants. And so we get, we get a different reality in the archives and we have the problem that these minutes are, have been edited in, in some ways to gloss over very kind of politically sensitive issues or to correct certain statements that drafters did make, but they wanted to polish a little bit before it get published. So I tried to get away from the travaux and, and get a sense of what was going on behind the scenes. So what was, what was, um, what did drafters think and how did they try to deal with the public and private distinction? And how did they deal with the fact that they were journalists in the audience and they, those journalists would write things down in their reports? And of course, that would be published. So they had to think about all these different issues as they were drafting proposals for the convention's future. So I think these archival sources you offer quite a unique perspective on the context in which the question of humanizing warfare re-entered the arena of global politics in the 1940s. But that comes with, with challenges, in part because some of these issues, so the decisions taken in Geneva, for instance, were done informally, and some of these informal decisions were mentioned in reports or archival reports, but others were not. And I had to kind of reconstruct that 
decision-making process and also get a sense of why some of these decisions were not expressed in, in reports that were sent back, for instance, to their capitals or were shared with their respective ministries if, if individuals were representing a ministry. So those were some of the issues, but also the fact that thrashers themselves actually didn't want to kind of convey certain ideas to to the larger audience. So Jean-Pierre Dirk, what a famous ICRC drafter, he was certainly not the leading drafter of everyone in the sense that he was calling all the shots. But within the ICRC, he was obviously critical as a supervisor of the internal drafting process. But he said the making of human internal law should remain anonymous. So that made it even more difficult for me when I was in Geneva going through the ICRC archival materials to get a sense of what was going on within the organization and what sort of differences and points of overlap they have on all of these questions, including civilian protection and so on and so forth. So that was another kind of challenge I faced as I was going through this, apart from language issues or that I sometimes had to deal with the fact that I couldn't go into an archive or that certain archives were difficult to access. To give you one example, I, I did my best to get archival materials from the former Soviet Union, but only was able to get some stuff from, from Ukrainian archives and only a limit to a limited extent. So I was happy to find those materials. It could give me a sense of what was going on behind the scenes among Soviet-aligned delegations, but I could not kind of completely reconstruct the position as I as I tried to do in the other state cases that you've already mentioned. So some those are some of the issues. And But again, I've, I think what I really value in the, in the project or in the book was to give the reader a sense of the importance of archives, and particularly right. for this type of work and, and what sort of not just challenges it, it creates, but also what sort of benefits it creates for understanding the, the lost past. Fascinating. And how long, just to digress from, how long have you been working on this book? So it was originally a PhD dissertation uh, that I funded a couple of years ago. And I think in, in total, I worked on it like seven years, maybe, or eight years at most. So that's quite a long time. But given the opportunity to, to do all that archival work and to synthesize different insights into what I hopefully is a coherent uh, narrative and argument. Well, let's dig into some of the detail. We're obviously not going to have time to get into all of it. But you mentioned the chapter on civil wars, internal wars, and the development of Carmen Article 3, which I think illustrates a number of the themes that we've been talking about. So why don't we sort of dig into to that and you can begin by telling us a little bit about the inception of the idea and how it develops and, and who are the main actors in bringing it over the finish line. Yeah, so this is obviously one of the most important articles of the four conventions. And I think it's the first body international legal provision in history that challenged states' absolute sovereignty in domestic and colonial affairs for, for humanitarian purposes. So it's really a critical one, and I put effort, effort into it in reconstructing its its past. So in the, in the respective chapters, so chapter three of the book, I, I try to revive what I call neglected history of how this central provision unexpectedly came into being. So we tend to take its existence for granted, but drafters certainly didn't do that. They were quite perplexed and surprised that they eventually came up with an article that applied to civil and, and colonial wars. And it, of course, since then, it has received both praise and criticism. For some, it's it's not enough. For others, it's it's quite revolutionary, quite innovative. But I wanted to get a sense of, of how this, this article emerged. And what I found striking about this past is that how these drafters, of course, thought about the question of sovereignty in this particular moment of the 1940s. 
So I already talked a little bit about the Cold War, talked a little bit about decolonization, but these structural phenomena had a critical impact on the making of, of commonalical free. And I'll tell you why in a second. So first, we have to get a sense of what is this article about? So what it tries to do essentially is to internationalize wars that used to be under the kind of sovereign domain. So civil wars, colonial wars, all kinds of wars and forms of violence that take place within a state. Most states, of course, including formal empires, were reluctant to give that sovereignty away to an international organization, for instance, or to allow international organization to come in and perhaps help victims of war that were affected by those civil and colonial wars. So this is obviously hinting at kind of the racial foundations of humanitarian law as it existed in the 1940s. And what is interesting is that in the 1940s, there are these proposals being put on the table to challenge those racial foundations of humanitarian law by trying to internationalize that what could not be internationalized up to that point, which is, again, the sovereignty of a state at its most fragile moment, in this case, when it's being threatened by rebels, for instance, or all kinds of challenges from, from within. And that creates this incredible debate was between states, among ICRC legal experts about what is sovereignty in the 1940s. And what I found surprising is that not so much that imperial powers were reluctant to give away that sovereignty, but at some point they started to actually ask for ICRC delegates to come in to the wars of decolonization they were fighting in, for instance, Asia, when you mentioned Indochina. I could also talk about Indonesia or could talk about Palestine when the British were trying to suppress Zionist insurgency. And there were all these kind of civil and colonial wars or combination of the two taking place in the 1940s. And the imperial powers were, were of course, because of Axis occupation, particularly Japanese occupation, really fragile. And they wanted to reinstate colonial sovereignty over these territories, but they found all kinds of difficult, experienced all kinds of difficulties. And, and and so their sovereignty was already, first of course, destroyed and then almost unable to recover. And they had to ask for international supervisors, in this case, the ICRC, to come in and help them with recovering that sovereignty. So there is a certain kind of paradox there or certain contradictions. So on the one hand, they're trying to recover that sovereignty. On the other hand, they're trying to limit it through internationalization. But it's tricky, of course, because they could also use the international to recover that colonial sovereignty. So that's the game, essentially, in the 1940s. How do you recover colonial sovereignty without trying to limit it? At least that's the game the imperial powers are trying to play. And the ICRC and a couple of Scandinavian delegations, I think this is, a, this is an opportunity. This is a moment for us to limit and restrain that the sovereignty of, of imperial powers and place some restraints on it if they face challenges from within. And that that's the kind of the basis of the struggle that took place in Geneva in the summer of 1949, when it, again, unexpectedly, they came up with a text that eventually turned into common article free. And I think one other important factor I should mention is, is the Soviet Union. Right. That's what I was going to ask. It's the Soviets play this important role. Yeah, so the Soviet Union, of course, has certain kind of legal visions on the convention's trajectory or where it should go to, and it connects with certain socialist visions of international law, which I can talk about a great deal. But there are, of course, also something like state interest of the Soviets, which are relevant in this particular context. The Soviets, of course, try to enhance the position of socialist or communist national liberation movements in Greece and other places of the globe where they're fighting against what, of course, they call bourgeois states or bourgeois empires. And they're trying to enhance the, the position of those individuals, trying to challenge those, those capitalist states. So, of course, they get captured and then they're in prison and Soviets are concerned about their treatment. But that's just one dimension. That's a very specific dimension. But I think what's really going on here, of course, is that 
that the Cold War has started. And the Soviets are keen to propagandize the, the struggle between these different states and about, the in this case, the future of common article free by putting the imperial powers in the corner and say, well, we're willing to accept that civil and colonial wars are going to be regulated by the Geneva Conventions. Of course we are, whereas, of course, the French and the British and the Dutch and all these other imperial powers are quite reluctant to do that. Even though, of course, they had previously accepted ICRC supervision in these wars of decolonization. Again, that's their struggle. So the Soviet Union is trying to push back against these imperial powers and then use that momentum to create propaganda for the Cold War. But the Soviet position itself is also complicated by the fact they're fighting insurgencies in Eastern Europe, which also in some ways connects with what, what we're seeing now in Ukraine today, because there were insurgencies going on in that same place of Eastern Europe, as well as in the Baltics. And the Soviets are trying to put down these nationalist insurgencies. But I think what their position is, and it connects with other imperial powers in the 1940s, is that they're willing to accept internationalization of civil and colonial wars as long as the sovereignty, the sovereign discretion is held by themselves. So if they can decide whether there is an armed conflict, or in this case, a, a non-international armed conflict, and thus whether the law applies. And I think that's that's a struggle or that's an issue that we're still seeing today, of course, about this, this, this game of states, about whether the law applies, whether it is an armed conflict, whether it is a war or something like that. And I think we, if we go back to the 1940s, we can see how that game was played. But also, of course, what, have, what sort of opportunities that created for those who are trying to create a more progressive interpretation of the law. Right. And you explore in the book in some detail how the Anglo-American powers in particular kept trying to put reciprocity clauses into the language and, you know, are sort of fighting this rearguard action, but ultimately they fail. And what are we to make of the Anglo-American inability to control the, the agenda here? Yeah, so the British position is in particular is quite interesting, of course, because they're the most aggressive of all of the allegations in Geneva. And that might be surprising for, for some from the British listeners of the podcast. For many listeners, right? I mean, the, we don't expect the, the British and the Americans to necessarily be the most regressive parties yes, in negotiations so. on humanitarian law. Well, frankly, I was not so surprised, but I can imagine that some people are surprised because they think that these are liberal democracies that, that you know, pr seek to promote international law and so on and so forth. But in reality, of course, we're seeing something else that took place in, in Geneva in the late 1940s, but also in Paris and uh, New York and other places where international legal documents were devised in the 1940s. It's not only applying, of course, to the story of Geneva, but also to the Genocide Convention, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and so on and so forth. So the British position is, is quite interesting, and not just because it's well-documented. I could can find a lot of materials in archives about this. But of course, also because they have a lot of influence at the time, because they are a great power, they have leverage over a whole range of different states. But at the same time, their position from the very start of negotiations is quite complicated, if not very isolated. So they also have to come to terms with their own identity, right? This comes back to the point that we discussed previously on the French position. So the British see themselves as present and future occupiers. So that might be another kind of perplexing observation for those who had a different kind of vision of, of the British as kind of these promoters of international law and so on and so forth. So the British, of course, are occupying various parts of Europe, in Asia, and they have an empire, a formal empire, that, that needs to protect it in their view. So what they are trying to achieve is to enhance the position of occupiers or states that are fighting insurgents, and they do that in, in a variety of ways. So they try to make it very difficult for resistance fighters to access the BW Convention. They're trying to minimize the protections given to civilians by, for instance, allowing the occupier to use reprisals, collective penalties, and so on and so forth. 
All these measures, of course, are heavily contested after the experience of Nazi occupation, and the British are aware of these sensitivities, but they are telling their allies, particularly continental European allies, well, don't, don't approach these issues from your emotional perspective. Take your interest seriously as NATO members, of course, that's in 1949, but before that as Western Alliance members and potential confrontation to the Soviet Union. You know, we, we might not face some of these resistance fighters again in the future, then they might be communist. And, and we have to prepare for that. So they're playing these interesting games with, with their allies about remote emotions and rationality. This, this is, this is quite, quite fascinating. And of course, they're also telling some of these continental European allies. Well, you know, even if you don't necessarily see that confrontation with the Soviet Union taking place anytime soon, what about your own empires? There you're also fighting all kinds of insurgents. And, you know, you have to prepare for it because we might have to come to grips with the reality that the convention is also going to apply to colonial war. So they're pushing these allies to make compromises and to basically give up their positions on civilian protection and the protection of resistance fighters and so on and so forth. But that proves indeed impossible, as you, as you just discussed just a moment ago. So they have to change their positions on all these issues. So not just come out of free or civilian protection, but also resistance fighters and so on and so forth. And you have to accept that some form of internationalization is going to take place and international law is going to be some sort of restraint for all these issues and is going to enhance the protection of victims of war broadly understood. But then, of course, behind the scenes, they're trying to put in reciprocity clauses. They're trying to create gaps in the law. They're trying to make it difficult for all these individuals to gain access to the law or to allow enforcers that are being protecting powers of the ICRC to come in and check if the law is properly comply with by, in this case, Britain or any other state or, or party to an armed conflict. So that's the, the British came as they were in Geneva and Stockholm and other places in the late 1940s to, to what they call still humanized warfare. And I think the last point I should make is, of course, about blockade and air warfare. Maybe it's something we can discuss also later on if we still have time. So the British, of course, are very keen to protect naval and air power of, of the alliance, and particularly of, of the British armed forces themselves. And they're trying to push back against any sort of proposal that would put a restraint through, for instance, allowing free passage of relief, which I think is particularly relevant now for Yemen and also Ukraine, and to, again, put restraints on the air weapon, which, which they thought was crucial for the defense of its empire. So why don't we take a, a few moments to drill a little deeper into that chapter? You have this whole chapter on indiscriminate warfare and focus on aerial bombardment, nuclear weapons, and starvation. And I think a lot of listeners will be surprised to, to hear the extent to which, again, the United States and the United Kingdom are trying to remove any limits on aerial bombardment in particular, and particularly given that the British had just suffered through the Blitz and had so many of, of London and, and other cities decimated by aerial bombardment. Here they are trying desperately to prevent any limitations on aerial bombardment in warfare going forward. Yeah, so if you look at the conventions as a whole, you'll see very few provisions that cover specifically the question of blockade and or air bombing. There's there's some provisions dealing with blockade, but there's there's fairly little air warfare apart from safety zones and so on and so forth. And that that created a puzzle for me. How come after Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima, and all these other kind of places where, where bombing took place, how after that experience how come after that experience, the drafters did not specifically regulate air bombing? So 
I think there, there are different explanations for this when you look at what, what scholars have written about this before. I think the most important explanation is that people would say, well, you know, this is Geneva law, it protects or it seeks to protect individual victims of war, whereas Hague law or the Hague conventions, they regulate conduct of hostilities. And of course, that explanation is also given by some drafters after they adopted the four conventions and say, well, we're going to deal with individual victims of war. We're not going to regulate conduct of hostilities such as air bombing. But is that an explanation or is that a justification for the decisions they took in Geneva? And I think it's it's rather the latter or the format. So what I what I try to show in the book is is not just that you know this distinction between Hague and Geneva law is, is quite mythical and it's it's more of a justification for decision made rather than an explanation. But also that there was a lot of debate about these issues. And that's not surprise us because more broadly, of course, in the 1940s, there were a lot of concerns about these issues. And not just in Geneva, but but throughout the world, basically, about nuclear weapons, about blockade, air bombing, and what that would do with, with humanity and what would be kind of the consequences for humanity. So this is a question relevant for intellectuals, just as it was relevant for drafters in Geneva as they gathered in the summer of 1949. So what I had to then explain is Geneva's silence on the indiscriminate warfare, because that's how I framed the lack of provisions on these issues. And I think then we get to the position of the British and Americans and, and how they saw these weapons as being critical to, to their alliance and to future war making. So the major Western powers sought to gain recognition for what they call extermination with recognized weapons of war. So this is a quote from a British source. And it refers, of course, to the threat of nuclear weapons as well as strategic bombing. And I think that plays a critical part in, in why they were eventually able to suppress attempts by socialist states and the Soviet Union again, also neutralist powers, particularly the Scandinavian ones and in ICRC, to place their limitation upon what is essentially virtually unrestrained air power in the 1940s. And, and I think that's really troubling. Of course. It's, it's quite shocking to read this part, especially because we're still grappling with the reality of air bombing and its indiscriminate effects on civilians. This is, of course, not a specifically historical question. It's also a very contemporary one, I think. And if we go back to the 1940s, we understand why, the, why we're still dealing with the, the consequences of the decisions taken in Geneva, not to specifically regulate these, these issues. So again, by I think if we replicate this quite deceptive justification of Hague law versus Geneva law, one covering the conduct of hostilities, the other not. I think we're, we're creating kind of another form of historical silence, which relegates to oblivion the, the enormous struggle that took place in Geneva, Stockholm, other places where the conventions were made. And I think that's something I really try to do differently in, in the book and also show, of course, how these Western powers try to do that. And this is not just through shooting gaps in the law or creating questions around application, but also just breaking the rules of procedure. So they are they are flouting the rules and they are doing their best to convince chairs or chairpersons to push back against certain proposals that would put certain restraints on air warfare. So they're, they're, they're playing all kinds of games, including some quite nasty ones, to get rid of, of those proposals. Interesting. And so... I think maybe in the time that we have left, we can sort of zoom out a little bit to some of the bigger issues or questions that sort of emerge from your very detailed examination of, of these negotiations and, as you say, these procedural machinations and your explanation for why it is that, that different states take different positions at different times and why there are conflicts within the delegations of states. 
And I guess one of the big sort of, it's not so much of a question, but something that surprised me in reading the book is that the extent to which a number of the parties, the ICRC itself, particularly with respect to the, the civilian convention, but not only the civilian convention, are quite explicitly and self-consciously trying to embed human rights in the conventions. And, and from our perspective today, in which we sort of think of international humanitarian law as a lex specialis that is quite distinct from international human rights law, and there are debates over how they overlap and to what extent and when and how they operate in the same time and space, back then, there didn't seem to be this consciousness at all. They were explicitly trying to put human rights into what we now think of as an international humanitarian law treaty. So how should we think about that? Well, I think, I think it's even more complicated than you suggest. So it's absolutely true that the leading drafters of conventions foresaw a remarkably close connection between human rights and humanitarian law. But it's a relationship that was heavily contested by a whole range of actors, and not just the great powers, for instance, or other powerful actors, but also by those working from within the ICRC, preparing some of the first drafts for the conventions. So before I talk about these kind of points of contestation, I think it's important just to zoom out a little bit before I go into the details. So scholars, of course, have argued that these fields, as you mentioned in your question, were separate, at least until the late 1960s with the Tehran Conference asking as one of its resolutions to adopt human rights in armed conflict. And that's usually seen as the moment when these fields slowly but gradually start to converge. But of course, when I went into the archives and I was looking also at some of the publications of these leading drafters, including Jean Pictet and a whole range of others, I saw they were talking about ideas of rights or conceptions of rights that were quite interesting, quite revealing, if not extremely important for what they came up with as drafts for the future conventions, particularly on issues like civilian protection. So they talked about anti-discrimination clauses that talked about intangible rights of individuals in armed conflict and so on and so forth. Well, that sounded, to me at least, like human rights. So then I found in the ICRC archives a small brochure from Jean Pictet who actually talks specifically about human rights in armed conflict. In from the 1940s, by the way, this is not like a, a later brochure that he published maybe in the 60s or in more recent days. No, he published it already in the, in the mid-1940s. And he talked about necessity of recognizing rights in armed conflict. So it is obvious there that they were looking at what was going on in Paris and, and other places across the globe where the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was being discussed. In fact, Jean-Pierre was receiving reports from an ICRC official there who was attending these meetings, and he was reading those reports. And his brochure is another kind of a testimony to his this growing influence of what I call human rights thinking. So it is true that you can see that impact of human rights thinking on the text as they were being drafted in these different places. So not just in Geneva or Stockholm, where these conferences took place, but also in the capitals where these states or organizations like the RCRC were preparing their proposals or their ideas for these conferences. So human rights thinking is, is very much on the table. At the same time, we don't see human rights as a text or as a concept, not so much a concept, but as a, as a, as a discourse in humanitarian law texts from the 1940s. Right? You don't see in the Geneva Convention of 49 a direct reference to human rights. Unless if you go back a little bit in time, you see the earlier drafts, you see references to human rights, but it disappears from the text. So that was a puzzle that I had to, had to solve there. So on the one hand, we can see human rights thinking being important, if not critical, because it, it created this kind of 
avenue for thinking in directions that were kind of impossible in previous decades to come up with quite revolutionary proposals to protect civilians, prisoners of war, all these other categories of persons, and also new categories of persons, or not so much new, but certainly new for humanitarian law lawyers, such as stateless persons, which is such a critical category in the 1940s. On the other hand, you know, it's not in the text, human rights, mm. at least not in the final text. So I try to explain that by not trying to break with like specialist thinking because it was still present. So this is the point of divergence from the point you were trying to make at the start you know, as part of your question. So the drafters, particularly ICRC, were keen to have their own conventions. So the Geneva Conventions being separate from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the potential confidence that would come only in the 1960s, but of course, we're only discussed in the 1940s. They were trying to make them distinct from the Genocide Convention. They were trying to make them distinct from all these other treaties, declarations that were being discussed in the 1940s. So on the one hand, they, they tried to create these kind of intellectual connections between those different fields of international law. On the other hand, they wanted to have their own international law, if that makes any sense, right. particularly the ICRC. And of course, I could also talk about the British position very keen on creating gaps between these different fields <laughs> of law because those gaps could then be used to put in resistance fighters that were challenging British rule, for instance, in Malaya and other places. But that's not the whole story. It's not only about kind of state interest or realpolitik. It's it's really about these different legal visions that were clashing and at the same time needed to be codified in such a way that would kind of codify or would protect these institutional interest and visions for the post-war period. So yeah, human rights was important. It didn't get into the text, but the human rights thinking behind it is present on virtually every page of the four conventions. At least that's my argument. Right. Interesting. So if we zoom all the way back out to where we sort of started, you know, as you say in the introduction, you're challenging these myths and you're suggesting a new understanding of the history of the process that produced these conventions. I guess one question that that leaves us with is, is well, what should we make of the history? And specifically from the lawyer's perspective, because I'm the lawyer here, how should we understand that in the context of the interpretation of the conventions or understanding how they operate, right? So the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties gives us some guidance as to what, you know, original intent and the drafting history should play in interpretation. But if we have a new and different understanding of the history of these conventions, I guess one question is, like, so what? I mean, it's fascinating, but should it also affect how we think about the operation of the conventions? And I think this leads us to your current work, because I, as I understand it, you're now doing another project that's looking at, indeed, the operation of the conventions after the fact in particular armed conflicts. So how are you thinking about how the history should affect how we think about the operation of the treaties? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. So the so what question is always an unfair one to ask, but it's an important one, right? So I think history, I mean, of course, you have had other historians on your podcast talking about Chip Jab. I'm not the first one. And, you know, I confess my undergrad is in history, so I'm very sympathetic with history as a discipline. Excellent. So I'm not the first one to make a passion case for history within international law, but I certainly will will do it again or try to do it again. So I think Going back to the archives or going back to the original sources can tell us something new about the conventions or international law more generally that we can't do if we would just stick to the travaux or we would just stick to current debates only, if that makes any sense. So what I think 
history can do is not just contextualizing things or showing that there were all kinds of other proposals on the table, but also provide a sense of hope, which might be something important today as humanitarian law is, as people would say, going through another crisis. I mean, I'm always a bit skeptical about the crisis language, but it's certainly a powerful one and it keeps coming back. So this, of course, is a reference to Palestine, Ukraine, and so on and so forth. So history, of course, gives, can, can give us a sense of hope because we can see what sort of possibilities existed, in this case, in the 1940s, for creating kind of more emancipatory, more progressive idea of so humanizing warfare, perhaps even eradicating warfare as such. And there's also debate, of course, between peace and humanizing warfare and so on and so forth, which also was, was relevant for the 1940s. So if we accept the possibility of contingency and different possibilities, we can think we can also imagine a different future. So I think that's that's another thing I try to do in the book to show what these other possibilities were, how close we got to them, and of course finally why they were rejected or why they weren't why they didn't emerge as a treaty or as a codified provision. So history can show us that different future in a way, which might sound paradoxical going back in order to go for it, but that's at least what I try to do in the book to show these different possibilities and also kind of the intact potential of the conventions on issues like irregulars protection and so on and so forth. To give a very specific example, because otherwise it sounds a bit abstract and we're just flying up in the air. In the irregulars chapter, of course, I talk a great deal about how these organizations and states thought about counterinsurgency warfare and to what extent irregulars needed to be protected through the POW convention. But also talk about the civilian convention, the link between the civilian and the POW convention and the drafters, of course, not all of them, but certainly important and, and, and influential one, foresaw our connection between these conventions in order to prevent individuals who take up arms to fall between the conventions or outside of the conventions. And that seems to be still quite an important issue today, certainly since 9-11, where, of course, U.S. government has, not the current one, of course, the Bush administration, was quite keen to put certain individuals outside of the POW convention and refuse to recognize that even if they would not fall under the relevant article from the POW convention saying who is a POW, that they could still fall under civilian convention. And I think my work shows that many of these drafters did, force, did foresee a tight connection between these conventions. So if you would not, for instance, carry arms openly, if you don't wear a uniform, you take up arms, you're captured. You cannot just be tortured because you would have still access to the civilian convention, which sounds surprising because the civilian convention, no, it's called a protected person. And I think that's that's for a reason they use that particular language. So you could still fund that civilian convention in order not to be tortured and so on and so forth. And to be, of course, visited by the ICRC or protecting powers. So I think that's important. It shows what I think is an untapped potential of these of these convention. And history can show these linkages and connections that create hopefully more humane interpretations of, in this case, detainment in armed conflict, for instance. And I can give you more examples, also in relation to, for instance, air bombing or enforcement and so on and so forth, which were even more contested issues than uh, regular protection. Well, I'm mindful of your time, but before we get to reading recommendations, I mean, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about your current research and how it ties into this history? Yeah, so now I'm starting a new project in the conventions practice after 1949. So for my book, I've looked at the 
making of humanitarian law. But now I want to look at the, the practice of conventions as our armed conflicts broke out in the years and decades after 1949, particularly in the global South. So the book is, is really about North Americans, Europeans, Australians, New Zealanders talking about the law and its future. But the next project, I want to look at how fruitful actors in particular have interpreted and engaged with the Geneva Conventions in various armed conflicts, starting basically with the Algerian War of Independence and going to South Africa, National Liberation Movement during apartheid, to Vietnam and air bombing in the 1960s, to Chile, political imprisonment in the 1970s, eventually ending with the making of the protocols and how these different legal issues for each of these armed conflicts were addressed during these negotiations. That's basically the project. So I want to write a global history of conventions. I want to get a sense of the practice of, of how these laws actually operated in practice in armed conflicts by looking at specific legal issues. So Algerian case, it's about fruit will humanitarian law. So how a fruit will actor like the Algerian nationalist embrace humanitarian law. So I've been to Algeria recently to get a sense of what was going on behind the scenes, so to say. So how the Algerians discussing among themselves about how to use humanitarian law or how to use the ICRC for their particular political objectives. And of course, also how the French respond in the ICRC and what sort of implications that had for the larger kind of international struggle of the Algerians on the global stage to gain recognition for the right to self-determination. So that's basically the project in a nutshell. Well, we'll have to have you back to talk all about that in due course. But before I let you go, I would like to ask if you have three reading recommendations for our readers, whether it's a book, article, something you think may have escaped people's attention. Yes, absolutely. I'm not sure if it has escaped people's attention, but I certainly want to amplify the work of, of some of our colleagues. So the first one I want to mention is Giovanni Montea's book, Lawmaking Under Pressure. It's a really good book on common article free. He does not only talk about common article free, but he talks more extensively than I do in my book, basically the longer history of regulating non-international armed conflicts, including the period of the 1970s. And of course, he theorizes a lot more than I do in my work about how we can explain the emergence of the idea of restraining the sovereignty in armed conflict through humanitarian law. So I definitely recommend his work. It's an excellent book. The The other book I want to mention is from Nick Milner, which is The Economic Weapon. It's on the history of sanctions, which I think is really relevant now as we see sanctions being implemented across the globe against uh, various individuals and regimes. And he has written a history of these sanctions regimes, particularly for the interwar period. And I think it's also interesting for international lawyers to get a sense of the past of these sanctions as they're probably a different tool of war making in our time than what I've been talking about today. And the last piece of scholarship I want to mention is an article from Jessica White in Humanity. It's on just war and humanitarian law, particularly from the 1960s and 1970s. She shows how that thinking of just war entered the domain of humanitarian law in that period. And it also in some way connects with discussions that are going on right now about the amnesty report in relation mm. to, to Ukraine and distinction between indeed Jip and Jab going back to the, the core of the, the podcast. And she shows how socialists and fertile actors kind of inserted that language into humanitarian law and how we're still kind of grappling with that distinction as armed conflicts take place and, and the question emerges, well, what do we do if there's an asymmetrical conflict or an asymmetrical war in which there's one very powerful state, in this case, Russia, and a less powerful state or less powerful actor like Ukraine? 
And what are the implications for that when it comes to humanitarian law? Does the law apply equally to both actors? Or do we need to recognize the incredible power difference between the parties? And does that need to have a legal effect? Or can we just ignore that incredible power disparity between the parties? Because, you know, law applies equally to everyone. And of course, socialist and, and third world states in the 60s and 70s had quite interesting views on this question. And I think it's interesting to go back to that period to get a sense of how that jip-jap distinction was discussed and finally also codified into the protocols. Fascinating. Well, listen, thank you so much, Boyd. This has been really interesting. And, you know, of course, we've only sort of scratched the surface of your book. So I recommend all of our listeners go out and get the book at the earliest opportunity. And as I said, we'll have to have you back sometime to talk about your new project. Thank you, Greg. It was, it was a pleasure. Uh, thanks again. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. If you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is on the website, which is at jibjabpodcast.com. You can also find links to the materials discussed today and all the reading recommendations today on the website. If you're enjoying the podcast or finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog post or other writing. And do tell your friends, colleagues, and students all about it. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at @jibjabpodcast for updates on the upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. 